So this morning I do want to give a set of reflections uh, specifically catalyzed by it being the 4th of July. (laughs) And uh, I want to uh, pay homage to the Declaration of Independence, the birthday July 4th, 1776, that catalyzed the uh, what we sometimes call the American Revolution. And I want to um, honor that in certain ways, connect it with our practice, and invite what we might call a second American Revolution, which is very much needed and will probably be much more a revolution, not so much of independence, but as many people are suggesting, of interdependence. So the second American Revolution is a revolution of interdependence and something we train for in our practice so we can be uh, of great value. And I think the second American Revolution probably also is more uh, of a global revolution and, in fact, points beyond nationalism. So those are a few hints. (laughs) So um, what I'd like to do is to uh, be interested in that connection between the deeper vision of this country, which I believe is a vision that connects the forms of our society with our inner being, and particularly uh, was designed to create social forms which would maximize individual well-being. That's very explicit. And most of the founders consider themselves uh, spiritual. It was really, it was quite a spiritual vision that was there. And so what I'd like to invite us to do is to look at these links between uh, the inner work that we particularly do here, developing uh, mindfulness and the open heart and leading an ethical life of not harming others and being skillful in bringing our wisdom into our lives, into practice. I'd like to invite us uh, to reflect on that connection between our inner practice and the, f- the, the larger outer forms of our life. I think that's, for me, uh, are the reflections which are really uh, opened up by uh, reflecting on the 4th of July. And I want to do so really in three parts. I want to first really honor what is uh, beautiful about the vision that comes out of the 4th of July. The, uh, the, the beauty of the vision of this country, which many of us may not always remember. We may be preoccupied by the problems. And there are a few of those these days to understate the situation. And um, so I want to first really bring us back to that. I think that's quite important, especially in challenging times, to to remember the vision. And then I want to, maybe a little more briefly, talk about the contours of the basic problems we have, which I think are calling for what I was calling a second American revolution of interdependence. And then, um, so I want to do that secondly, really look at some of the issues. And then thirdly, talk about uh, a vision 
for moving forward that I think is very deeply connected with our practice and for which um, the inner practices that we do linked with helping others and responding to the difficult places in the world, uh, that vision can come very much out of our practice and be a wonderful contribution to the world and also a way to help make sense of our own lives and our own vocation. That's my, and I'll, I'll be bringing in it's in that latter vision, the more the visionary aspect, our friend, the Bodhisattva. <laughs> the one who is committed to both helping others and coming to awakening. And for, for whom those are um, in, interpenetrate. They're, they're connected. Okay, so that's my sort of three parts. Three parts, and then we'll have a chance to uh, talk together. So I think it is really important to remember the beautiful aspects of the country. And it really parallels the way that I think it's very important in our practice to touch uh, beauty, to touch our vision regularly. Sometimes our practice we may be more preoccupied by what the difficulties are in my mind, or my suffering, or my challenges, or my stuck places. And it's very important in all transformation, individual or social, to have uh, good access to the beautiful vision. Otherwise things dry up. Otherwise we get a little bit, what, cynical, or burnt out, or negative. And so have to have access both to the vision, and then of course if we only have access to the vision, or what's beautiful, or what we think is beautiful, and aren't willing to go into the problems, that's, uh, that leads to, to um, distortions as well. You know, and maybe often the mainstream celebration of the 4th of July may err on that side, you know, of you know, not really bringing up the stuck places on the 4th of July. But really, in fact, actually more making it a matter of fireworks and hot dogs, which probably doesn't go either into the vision or the <laughs> difficulties. Okay. So, but maybe it does for some, for many people. Okay. Okay. I mean, I like fireworks. Okay, I won't, I won't analyze fireworks. It does have some militaristic connotations, but I won't go there right now. Okay. Okay. Um, so we we have this uh, birthday, and you know I thought I would read some of the words of the Declaration of Independence because they're quite powerful. And I invite you, as you're listening to these, listen for that connection of the inner and the outer, and listen to the visionary quality. This is 1776, and it was quite a radical move to declare independence from the major empire of the time. Right? Audacious. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, 
that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new governments, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. So it's a powerful vision. It's really, uh, we could say, that that idea that governments, which largely before that, certainly in recorded history, had been the province of kings and emperors and so forth, and there was a sense that they were unchangeable. You know, that uh, there's a line in the, I think in the Christian Bible, where it says the powers that be are ordained of God, which has been noted by many rulers since that time. <laughs> you know? And there were, I think, the very idea that one could change the society for the benefit of people was a new idea. It was a radical idea. It had not done, been done before. You know, there had been smaller attempts to do that, but on the level of a whole country, this was new, this was radical, this was visionary. This was, we might say, moving uh, in a powerful way the uh, evolutionary learning process of the species. You know, so quite, quite powerful. And the values that were being emphasized were values, you can hear them in the Declaration of Independence, they were the values of equality, of universal equality, of human rights, of the idea that one could learn through uh, clear thinking, the development of one's wisdom. You know, in the, in the Declaration of Independence, it says we hold it self-evident. It's very much like a Dharma principle. You know, look carefully at this and you will see that this is so. You know, so there's that appeal, in that language of the time, it was the appeal to reason. It was the appeal to reason outside of uh, dogma and tradition. You know? And there was uh, this emphasis on happiness as being a part of the, you know, government should be there for the well-being of the people. Again, we may take that as um, obvious or for granted, but it was a radical idea at the time. You know? So traditions, tradition would not dictate how society was. And there was that connection between the form of government and the inner state, the inner state of, of oneself. And so it's been, for me, uh, for me, I think coming of age in the 60s and early 70s, um, as an adult, I've been in, um, I've been largely with governments that I did not agree with and that I was critical of. And I think, and, and it sometimes is hard just from that history to look at the positive, but I think it's quite important to do. You know? And one of the persons who did that most beautifully was uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. You know, with all the criticisms, you hear a tremendous love of the country. It's quite, you know, you can go back and listen to some of the talks, which are, you know, these days it's on YouTube. You can go, go listen. And, and listen for that sense of the vision. And he is not, you know, he is not separate from the vision of the country. And he, and he uh, like many others, saw his role to help actually have that vision be realized more fully, come towards that 
fullness. So this is what he said in 1961. And you can hear some of the language that is from some of his more well-known speeches, particularly at the Washington Monument. In the the real sense, America is essentially a dream, a dream as yet unfulfilled. It is a dream of a land where people of all races, all nationalities, and all creeds can live together as brothers and sisters. The substance of the dream is expressed in the sublime words, words listed to cosmic proportion of the Declaration of Independence. And then he quotes the the lines I just read about the, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all are created equal. You know, and so he quotes that, and that animates his, his work. And you know, I have found that the, this connecting with the vision often happens best through uh, connecting with poets and artists, you know, musicians, you know, that, that they can often express that vision and contact this, that vision, as well as, I think, um, certain visionary activists or visionary politicians. I think Obama at his best does that, right? That's what many people felt in 2008, right? There was that, that kind of vision of um, that, the best vision of the country, you know, coming, coming forward and manifesting. And obviously it did in certain ways that are, again, imperfectly realized. So Walt Whitman, great, great poet, wrote a, a very interesting book, uh, 1871, Democratic Vistas. It was the time when the corporations were starting to gain a lot of power in the country. And he, was, he was quite critical of that, which I'll, I'll come to later. He said, he said, what we need is a sublime and serious religious democracy. You know, so it's, it's that potential of connecting spirituality with democracy was being, I think that's part of the vision. You know, and again, we, we don't always know how to do that. And he pointed again to the unfulfilled quality. He said, we have frequently printed the word democracy, yet I cannot too often repeat that it is a word, the real gist of which still sleeps quite unawakened. It is a great word whose history, I suppose, remains unwritten because that history has yet to be enacted. 1871. You know, or there's the the vision of the uh, Statue of Liberty, you know, of welcoming people who have come from lands where there was oppression or tremendous hardship to come to the country, a kind of welcoming and a compassion. You know, the original title of the uh, Statue of Liberty was Liberty Enlightening the World. <coughs> Freedom Enlightening the World was, was there, you know, and you, you probably, some of you probably have read, you know, the, the lines that are there at the Statue of Liberty from uh, the poet uh, Emma Lazarus. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these the homeless tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. There's that welcoming, we might say, the welcoming of the um, person in need. Again, these days that's um, very um, problematic. We know that, you know, we know that that spirit of compassion isn't always there. Or there's the emphasis on the, the beauty of the land, which, you know, can be very much uh, present. I was reflecting that this is the, um, coming up to the 100th anniversary of uh, the birthday of Woody Guthrie, some of you know. And uh, I was 
talking to my mom who's here, and she said that, you know, you saw Woody Guthrie in the 1940s, right? You know, performing in New York, right? So very, and this is 100th birthday, and some of you remember, many of you sang, this land is your land in school. How many of you sang, this land is your land in the school? And you know, can, you know, can really points to the beauty of the land. You know, this land is your land, this land is my land, from California to the New York Island, from the redwood forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. So um, can really feel that, or you know, and I know when I've lived overseas, I've some, you know, again, even with the history of not really feeling always that connection and being focused on a lot of the problems, could sometimes have that love of the the beautiful aspects of the country evoked. You know, I think for me a lot through the music. You know, I, I can. <coughs> remember these experiences when I, uh, you know, one, one of the experiences I remember is um, being in Thailand at uh, gatherings of a group I, whose meetings I often went to, the International Network of Engaged Buddhists, which typically met in Thailand. And we'd have an international gathering, mostly people from Asia, but a lot of people from Europe and U.S., Australia. Um, and in the evenings, we would typically have what we called cultural sharing, and people would uh, people would perform dances and you know music or tell stories and so forth uh, in the evening. It was quite wonderful, and and um, one of the people who was there uh, often with me was Alan Sanaki. Some of you know who was the director of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship for a lot of years, and and uh, also a Zen teacher and and, a, and, and an activist and. Uh, Alan's also a professional level musician and has done a lot of CDs and he would sing American folk songs mm -hmm. in the forest in the forest at monasteries in Thailand and you know and something would just get really really warm inside you know with those experiences to feel you know again to feel the love something got evoked you know it was like the best you know the best of and the vision so I think it's valuable to keep connecting with that, you know, and valuable today to reflect on that. You know, I was maybe just to ask, just for yourself for a minute or so, you know, uh, what, you know, this is just, just for yourself right now, what most inspires you about the country? Just to take a minute silently for yourself. What most inspires you about this country? Maybe just if you can say just in one sentence, maybe hear from a few people. Anyone like to share? Yeah, uh, Heidi. Freedom of speech. Freedom of speech. Please. You were talking about music, so I went immediately to Aaron Copeland. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I can kind of riff on mm -hmm. that size and mm -hmm. power. Mm -hmm. The music, so the music of Copeland, please. The potential for change. The potential for change, yeah, the freshness, yeah. Natural beauty. The natural beauty. Spirit of people pitching in when uh, yeah. there's a disaster. Spirit of people helping, cooperation, especially when there's something difficult, a disaster. Maybe one or two more. Anyone? Small yeah. towns. Small towns. The virtues of small towns. Yeah. The freedom to move around and recreate your life. 
freedom to move around, recreate one's life. The mixture of how many different people. Yeah, the mixture of, uh, of, of how many different people come here and that richness of that. So I think it's great to keep connected with that, keep connected with that vision. And yet, there are a few issues. <laughs> Second part, okay? There are a few problems, and, you know, uh, we c I could take a long time on these. I think we know these. You know, uh, Dr. King assembled a, a very good short list. He talked about the three poisons of uh, poverty, racism, and militarism. You know, and probably we could add to that the, uh, the ecological problems, you know, and I think it's, again, I, I don't know how much I need to remind us of those. And, they, and I think what's interesting is that these are larger systemic issues, but they also have very much uh, an effect on our inner lives. That, you know, you think of the uh, economic challenges, you know, the, the economic, you know, the, particularly the way the economic system seems to be um, declining. Again, different, different stories, different scenarios. But, uh, you know, the, the, um, the economic collapse of a few years ago, a lot of people were seeing things coming, you know, but, but we can look towards the way that that may be connected on the individual level with uh, a great amount of uh, greed. You know, that one of the ways of analyzing some of the economic problems has been in the vast transfer of wealth in the last 30 or 35 years from the uh, less wealthy and the middle class to the wealthy. I think you know the tax rates have changed dramatically. You know that the, I think it was something like uh, uh, corporations paid something like, uh, I don't know, something like uh, I don't know, their taxes added up to maybe, these figures may not be right, but they're, probably they're in the same, they're right ballpark. I didn't, I didn't do my homework on those. But there's something like, you know, something like uh, 60 or 70 percent of the taxes raised came from corporations and came from the wealthy uh, 30 or 35 years ago. And now it's something like 20 percent. Right? The vet, you know, and the, I do know that the tax rates have gone in the 50s and 60s from 91 percent to 35 percent. You know, uh, and very, you know, very, very, uh, and and that the, the the in the 1970s the gap between the rich and the poor in the U.S. was actually one of the healthiest in the whole world, and now it's one of the worst. That things have radically changed. You know, like I don't know, like the gap between the typical worker's uh, wage and the CEO has, you know, like increased a hundredfold in the last. Um, in the last 30 years. So a lot of changes, you know, connected, it seems, with uh, certain levels of self-centeredness, wealthy people wanting to, in many ways, take some of the benefits, a lot of the benefits of computers and technology. And, you know, wages for most people have stayed static. Again, we can, what is the, what is the um, interconnection of this, you know, uh, the, or what, it, what is the inner correlation of this? You know, for many of us, there may be a certain amount of anxiety or fear or wanting just to look out for oneself, uncertainty, and uh, and that can be that can be very very strong. There can be also a sense of 
disconnection or putting all of one's, needing to put all of one's energy into, into jobs. I know in an area I used to work in, uh, you know, there have been these just massive changes, whereas I think it's now 70% of people who work in universities are part-time with no security, right? And it was, um, it probably, probably 20 or 30 years ago, it was probably 90% had secure jobs. So there's been these tremendous structural changes in the last period of time. And, you know, and, and there can be a, a sense of uh, this fear, insecurity, breakdown of community, disconnection, and so forth. And, you know, and the, the second of the poisons that King identified was, is, was racism. And particularly, he was particularly looking at the racism directed towards um, African Americans or people of African descent. And you know, we know that in that document that I read, even the Declaration of Independence, it's, it talked about all men. And of course, that mean, you know, the, what that actually meant at the time was uh, what we would call white men who have property. Right? So who, a lot of people excluded by that, right? So it's actually a very small percentage. They were the people who actually were proper to make the decisions. You know, and I'm afraid we're re reverting to that, <laughs> sadly. You know? But at that time, men did not mean, women did not have the vote. African Americans were three-fifths of a person in the original Constitution. Um, Native Americans were zero didn't even qualify for three-fifths. You know? And so we have that history. You know? it's, it's, a, it's a difficult history. And I think, you know, I often think of the um, legacy of slavery as the core wound of this country. You know, it's like something very deep that we often don't want to face. You know, and it influences so much. And there have been ways of remedying it. You know, I think, I, I don't, again, I can only give a short analysis here, but I think, of course, people have in many ways tried to look at the economic issues or the issues of racism and tried to remedy it. And there's been a lot of movement and progress, whatever the labor movement, the eight-hour workday, and so forth, were all ways to help shift things. So it's, a, it's always a mixed picture. But we have, these, we have these systemic issues. And we have, again, we have the way it manifests on a personal level or an inner level can be certain, uh, you know, uh, segregation of populations, lack of connection. Again, a lot of things have shifted in certain ways, but we still have those legacies. And, you know, again, uh, you'll find in all of these structural issues, fear is going to be a common uh, inner experience so often. And so we have also, we have um, King talked about militarism and, and war as being one of the, the other uh, systemic problems, you know, and it's interesting that the Founding Fathers were, you know, perhaps because they came out of an anti-colonial revolution, they were very adamant that the U.S. should never be a conqueror, should never invade other countries. You know, and so you can find in the uh, statements of uh, Washington or Jefferson, Jefferson, 1791, if there is one principle more deeply rooted than any other in the mind of every American, it is that we should have nothing to do with conquest. And this is from uh, George Washington, 1796. Overgrown military establishments are under any form of government inauspicious to liberty and particularly hostile to the liberty of our republic, criticizing overgrown military establishments. 
Right? So that's, you, can find, you can find those kind of statements. And um, King was very strong and controversial. You know, some of his views about militarism uh, took him out of favor. You know, some of you know that. He made a lot of statements about Vietnam the last year of his life. And at the time of his death, he was actually pretty unpopular for those views, even in the black community. I mean, I think it was different, but he was, uh, his popularity rating at the time of his death was under 50% generally, in large part for his views. This, he made very strong statements. He said, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. Right? So a lot of statements here that I think can be quite, have an emotional impact, right? And I think we have to be able to work with that. You know, and the ecological issues may be even the most daunting, right? You know, and they were not on the horizon when King was identifying the three poisons. But for us, for many of us now, those are the most um, troublesome or dire, right? That, that uh, you know, whether it's the extreme weather just of the last week or two, right? You know, like I think a third of the U.S. population under extreme heat that has almost never been there historically, you know, city after city saying, we've broken the heat record for this day, you know, last week, you know. I think the fires in Colorado were the worst in its history. You know, and this is, again, you know, it's, one can't, in terms of uh, climate science, say that any one particular event is the result of climate disruption. But, you know, I think we've all looked at that. And we know that um, uh, climate disruption makes this, this way more likely. And, you, and we, we see things happening more and more. And so, you know, we may, you know, with, with these crises, they're hard. They're hard for us to bear. So how to work with this? Where's the vision? You know, I may have, uh, as it were, brought you to a good mood, into a good mood talking about the beauty of the country, and that was followed by a downer, <laughs> right? Identifying some of the, which we all know, right? But it, it took us into our feelings that, we're, that we don't always look at or face. And it's really important to be able to work with these. You know? And I, I just mentioned anyone who can work with Joanna Macy. Her work is some of the most skillful work for going into the inner pain that most of us carry without it dealing with it. Because we don't have social therapists. We can't say, I'm feeling bad about the state of the world. Could I work this out for an hour <laughs> with you, you know, and it accumulates inside. You know, it's, I'm making a joke of it a little bit, but it's actually what I have found in doing that work myself is that it's in there, in us, and it leads to certain phenomena like despair, cynicism, burnout, depression even. So we have, to, we have to work with it. So what to do with all this? And what does our practice that we do here at Spirit Rock have to do with any of this? You know, I mean, I've made some connections, but we can ask that question. Um, how, do we, you know, how do we move towards this uh, second American revolution, a revolution of interdependence? How do we how do, we do that? I think the, that sense of interdependence and connecting inner and outer is really... Um, really important for, for all of this. And there's this figure, which I come back to, who may be really something very inspiring for us and a vision. And that is the, uh, 
in the Buddhist tradition, of course, we have wonderful tools for working with difficult emotions, for working on an individual level with confusion, with a sense of um, fear or difficult emotions or anger and so forth. And yet we don't really have necessarily anything to tell us. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, we don't have anything in the text from 2,000 years ago to tell us uh, what, are, what are the limits of a capitalist economy? Should we abolish capitalism? We don't find that in the Buddhist text. You know? We don't find what kind, of, uh, what kind of energy system is best in a time of global warming. And so but what we do find is a very inspiring figure who is committed to do both inner work and outer work at the same time, who is committed to to um, um, come to awakening and to help others. And I think that what I didn't go so much into in terms of the uh, analyses of the problems is that you can see how those problems are in many ways uh, not just systemic crises, but they're crises of who we think we are. You know, the ecological crisis is connected with us feeling disconnected from the earth not having that sense of interdependence. And when we practice often, in depth, we come to that sense of interdependence. You know, and a lot of the traditions of meditation come from people who live very close to the earth, in the forest, in the mountains, who know that sense of interconnection. You know, so there's a kind of a crisis of perception and sense of who we are that's connected with the ecological crisis. The same thing with the economic crisis. It's a, it's a system in which we could say it's organized around self-centeredness and greed to a large extent. And again, when we do the inner practices, we bring out more of that sense of interdependence and compassion. So, it's not, it's, so it, what this points to, I think, is it's not just about changing systems. You can change systems, and if you don't change the inner nature of ourselves, things don't change. That's partly the, the sad history of many revolutions, you know, where you have a change in leadership or a change in government, but if you haven't changed the nature of the being, you still have the old conditioning. And so this is, I think, where we have this emerging vision of the importance of inner work and of this figure of the bodhisattva, literally the awakening being, who's dedicated to awakening and also to helping others and sees the connection between the inner and the outer and is prepared to work on both. That's, I think, something that's deeply uh, called for in our, um, at our times. Um, to have that sense of meditation and to uh, see how we need really to, to shift uh, not just our systems, but our very well way of perception. Again, Joanna Macy, very helpful word. She says that the changes needed in our time have to take three main forms. One of them is she called holding actions to prevent further damage. First kind of change. Second is to change our basic institutions and systems. So that would be shifting the way we do agriculture, or shifting the way we do medicine, or education, or psychotherapy, or parenting, or raising the young, to really shift that. And the third is shifting our very way of perception, our way of being with ourselves, our bodies, our world. 
and all three are necessary. Activism often comes just under the first, but the, all three of these are necessary. And I think the bodhisattva, and I'm saying this because I think all of us are either self-identified bodhisattvas or potential bodhisattvas. And that sense of the bodhisattva is someone who takes one's own gifts and brings it into that vision of individual awakening connected with helping others in whatever way works best for oneself. And one of the ways I like to see it is that the, um, if you think of those three types of change, all three are necessary. And I think if you think of where do my gifts lie and what really brings me alive? And there's that wonderful quotation from Howard Thurman, lifelong activist, African-American theologian and activist, who was asked by a young man near the end of his life, what should I do? And he did not say, you know, well, we need a few more people in this campaign. Why don't you come down and help us with that or do this or do that? He said, don't ask what the world needs. Ever hear an activist say, don't ask what the world needs? It's a deep spiritual activist. He said, don't ask what the world needs. Rather, ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs are people who, is people who have come alive. Right? And so when, I, when we look to an individual response to this, to be a bodhisattva, one, you know, where, do, where can I help? Well, I don't think we all work with the large systemic issues. We're not all activists. Maybe some of us are. But maybe some of us um, are really passionate about a different way of doing law or a different way of doing uh, education or parenting. Or there's something that we're really, where we teach yoga or whatever. And we're really passionate about it. And I've, I have found what's important is that we do what's passionate and we make connections between those three elements. That's really crucial. And maybe that we touch each of those three some, but we focus on what really has the most energy and passion for us and connect it and put it in that framework so that I might do selective activism maybe and my energy might be in trying to help change my local educational system but I connect it also with my meditation. And I connect it, and maybe I'm selectively active in Sacramento, right? So I've made that connection. The bulk of my energy is local, but I make the connection with the larger systems, with preventing further damage, and with my inner practice. That, I think, is what a bodhisattva does in our time. I think we're really calling for this, sort of for what we might call a new bodhisattva, a new type of bodhisattva who, who makes those connections. And maybe I'll finish just by saying, what's, if you're, I've been thinking about offering a um, several month course in the fall called the um, um, Bodhisattva Training Curriculum. <laughs> you know, so I've been thinking, what is the Bodhisattva Training Curriculum? What do we need to learn? Well, a lot of what we're doing is what we do here. I think the Bodhisattva has to really train well in mindfulness, the ability to open the heart, the ability to be with difficult states, right? Like to be with difficult physical states, emotional states. The bodhisattva has to have a lot of equanimity when, with the ups and downs, right? You have to have a lot of equanimity, a lot of balance with that. That's what we train for. We, have, we train for that individually also. When we do that, when we train individually in our meditation practice and we hang out day after day with the ups and downs, and we don't run away. That's the training a bodhisattva needs.
you know. And so there's this great contribution of the practice we do here for the world. Because one of the problems of the world is that people haven't made the connections between those different areas. So you have activists who don't have inner training. And it's very, very common that they get burned out or they get angry at each other more than they deal with the world. <laughs> very common. You know, when I was at a gathering for spiritual activists, I asked people, what's your major problem? He says, it's actually that we get angry at each other. That's what they said. That was one of the major problems reported by a lot of activists. And so we have these disconnections and, and, and often... Um, sometimes spirituality can also be just be this inner refuge to have a little more peace in my life, which is really important. And it's really important to have that get stabilized. But if we stop there, we may not really be living most fully. And the bodhisattva image is a way to really see as important that finding of inner peace, but then bring it outward, bring it outward into the world and find ways to do that. So what's the bodhisattva curriculum? Maybe I'll end with this and just saying, we have, we have these inner practices. We have to develop relational practices. We learn, have to learn skillful speech and communication, skillful group dynamics, mindful, mindful community, you know, mindful being with others, mindful working with differences, mindful working with all the types of conflicts that may come up. That's what a bodhisattva would train in. And bodhisattvas, I think, have to also be aware of the larger systemic issues. So part of bodhisattva training is to be at least reasonably informed about the world, about the economics, about the history of racism and so forth, about the um, you know, war and peace, about ecological issues, and then see where we're most inspired, see what makes us come alive, make the connections between our own inner work and what's needed by the world. And I think this is what's needed for um, a second American revolution. This, again, this revolution of interdependence that goes, in a, in a sense, points beyond that first revolution. So I think I will, I, I could talk about this for hours, but I think I will end, and it's okay, I think, to have the discussion. Yeah, in the, I think I will end with a wonderful poem. This is a Fourth of July poem. Uh, this is by Gary Snyder. Some of you may know this, it's called For All. And it's about this second uh, revolution of interdependence. Ah, to be alive this morning, fording a stream, barefoot, pants rolled up, holding boots, pack on, sunshine, ice in the shallows, northern Rockies, rustle and shimmer of icy creek waters, stones turn underfoot, small and hard as toes, cold nose dripping, singing inside, Creek music, heart music, smell of sun on gravel. I pledge allegiance. <laughs> I pledge allegiance to the soil of Turtle Island. That's the native name for the continent. One ecosystem in diversity under the sun with joyful interpenetration for all. I'll, I'll just read that at the, that last part. I pledge allegiance to the soil of Turtle Island one ecosystem in diversity under the sun with joyful interpenetration for all. So let's just sit for a moment and we can talk together some.
Thank you for your kind attention. And if there are any reflections or questions or if a poem has spontaneously arisen. <laughs> any questions, reflections, please? Yeah, uh, King talked about poverty, racism, and uh, militarism. And I added ecological issues. Yeah. Obviously, particularly uh, climate disruption. Yeah. Please. Were you serious about the three-month class? And if you were, where do we sign up for it? I'm contemplating it. And uh, it is, hasn't, for how many of you would like that, be interested? This is not a formal commitment. <laughs> okay. But that's, that's helpful for me. How many, of you, yeah, how many of you would most likely come if it was at Spirit Rock as opposed to Berkeley? How many of you would come to Berkeley? Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, well, that's good to know. Yeah, I'm, I'm seriously considering it. It's really, I'm trying to write this book on um, transforming the judgmental mind, which is important. You know, which, and it's, that takes time. So I'm trying to get a sense of my work, but I, I feel uh, called to do this. It partly came out of, uh, uh, David Loy and I offered a one-week retreat at the end of May. On, so it was a study retreat on socially engaged Buddhism. And the, we had a beautiful group of people. And when we, when we came and they said, what do, what do we want? Uh, something like this bodhisattva training and kind of this forming of a community was something that really appealed to them. So it'd be sort of holding something like that model I presented uh, and being a support for each other. You know, because I've, I've done, as, as many of you know, I've done that through a series of training programs, the last one being a two-year program here at Spirit Rock. And it's a lot of work, and I don't think I can start that now and still f finish projects. So this is kind of, each of us have something similar. It's me deciding how to bring out my energy and passion while not doing too much, you know, not getting... Because being uh, bodhisattvas, I think, have worked out probably, it takes some time, they've worked out the busyness issue. Mm. <laughs> A little bit. <laughs> you know, overscheduled, overly busy. I think bodhisattvas probably uh, work on that one. <laughs> right? Yeah, so, okay. Um, you know, I have, I have on the table there a sign-up sheet. Why don't you write down your name and email contact if you're interested in being contacted about this program. You can do that after we finish. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm gratified to hear of your interest because I, I know there's a lot of uh, wish for that. I probably would meet every two weeks or something like that and would have some um, prerequisites. Like I think it would, everyone would have to commit to regular practice and then people would all have some way that they're involved in the world, even small or volunteer work or something. Could be a few hours a week. Yeah. Other reflections or questions? Yeah. Uh, one of the challenges that I face is there's so much information out there. Yeah. There's, it's just mind-boggling to try to stay in any way abreast of um, the tremendous, mm -hmm. uh, just constant barrage of, yeah. of information and requests for help. Yeah. And trying to organize and see where, 
how how to deal with all of that yeah without being dismissive um, and and also to be informed it's just yeah I find it very challenging yeah so the question was about or the comment reflection was about uh, finding it very challenging with the vast amount of information out there about the issues the problems or for that matter about meditation practice. I think you were particularly talking about the first, about the yeah. state of the world. And so, yeah, I think, I mean, I think, I think, um, yeah, I think, I think, I think I was being a little bit humorous in mentioning the issue of busyness and so forth and being overly scheduled. I th- actually I think it's pretty important. And so much information is part of it as well. So, I mean, I, I'm sure we could compare notes on what we do. I personally just have a few sources of information. And I, you know, for something like the economic crisis or the ecological crisis or, um, or racism, there, there are sources where you can get very, very good overviews in a book or two. You know, I think that's very helpful. I mean, that's, maybe that's what I would, part of the bodhisattva that curriculum of, is yeah. identifying what that is. Okay, who are having workshops, you know, who are, I know people sometimes do that. Here's, here's a way to feel reasonably informed, you know. So, for example, um, I read a book recently, which I find very good, uh, by Richard Wolff, who's an economist. It's called Occupy the Economy, mm. you know. And to me, it's a single volume. I got a, uh, I've never been strong in economics, personally. Um, in the sense of understanding larger systems. And that book gave me a very, very clear sense. I mean, it obviously has a perspective. Um, you know, and maybe it'd be some people would question some things, but it gave a you know, very factually based account, for example, of the changes of the last 30 or 40 years, which I think are not, in some ways, not controversial, even if they're not focused on. So I think finding a few sources for, you know, regular news and and, you know, uh, um, we don't, as of now, have a bodhisattva news service. <laughs> but I think maybe we have some people who are working on that. You know, I mean, I know, um, I mean, I haven't followed the Huffington Post, but a lot of people are writing very good stories for that. You know, we have several people. Uh, Larry Yang, who teaches here, is writing. He writes regular uh, blogs and so forth, and I don't know, I think they're, so I'm, yeah, we, we could use uh, kind of a, a spiritually grounded news service that would give, that would be a tremendous service to give uh, enough for people to, well, I don't know, put in half an hour, 45 minutes a day, feel informed, and then read a few key books. So I think, yeah, the Bodhisattva training would be very good if we actually uh, maybe take people through that. I mean, that's what we've done in some of our past training programs. We've actually said, if you want to be informed in this area, we'll focus on that for this next month, okay, in the, and make the connections with our inner practices. That's what we've done. You know, the programs I've been connected with are the base program uh, for about, uh, about 10 years with Buddhist Peace Fellowship and this path engagement program here at Spirit Rock. And, but I'll, I'll let you know. Um, yeah, that's good. Bodhisattva news service. <laughs> Any aspiring journalists here? Okay. Other comments or reflections? Please. 
it, it's hard for me to keep the vision yeah. strong enough yeah. uh, to balance the problems. Yeah. I get overwhelmed by the problems. Yeah. So a comment about being overwhelmed by the problems and it's hard to keep in touch with the vision. How many can relate to that? Okay, I think, uh, yeah, because like I say, I think, I think there are a few pieces of it. You know, I think this is where the work of Joanna Macy is so important. That I think there are two aspects of it. One is actually being with a sense of overwhelm or pain in a community setting using tools to go into it and, in a sense, move through it and release it. You know, that's one piece. And I think we don't, you know, sometimes I've thought that one of my services could be to offer, uh, you know, monthly workshops where people could do that. Because I think that's part of it. It's some things accumulate. It's not, it's not just being with the vision, but it's working with the emotions and what's inside in relation to the sense of overwhelm which is very strong and tends to paralyze us or stop us from acting. You know? And it's, it's very important to do that. And then on the other side, how do we work with our vision? I find uh, meditation is beautiful for that. Retreats. I've actually, in some of my deep retreats, I have had kind of social visions. You know, I remember in, a long time ago, I did a three-month kind of solo retreat. Uh, I'm not saying this what I'm going to report requires three months. <laughs> but I, th cause I think it can happen all the time. But I remember when my mind got very quiet, suddenly out of nowhere, I had sort of a broad, a vast evolutionary perspective. And I say, hey, we're stuck on racism right now, but we can move beyond it. <laughs> right? And there was something in me which had, was visionary and optimistic, mm -hmm. which I don't particularly find that there all the time, day to day. So I think we can touch that vision when the mind gets settled, when we're with nature, when we have a sense of interdependence. Everything that's unresolved in our life kind of wants to move towards more resolution. So retreats can help. I think uh, community helps tremendously. Uh, maybe just having focused time when we bring forth the vision, you know, with music or maybe theater. <laughs> or uh, the arts, probably very important, right? That's what I was pointing to. The arts have been very, very crucial for preserving vision. And I was saying that the vision of this country may have been best preserved over the last 150 years by artists and musicians and people, creative people, and some politicians, but generally maybe more by the artists. That's interesting, isn't it, if that's true? And so maybe to connect with the music, the art, the vision, the nature, like-minded people, and then deliberately focusing on the vision regularly, not just on the 4th of July. Maybe, and maybe not just for part of the talk. Maybe you should give a whole talk on vision, you know, and the beauty, you know, and something like that. But that's a, that's a great question. I think that's a really, really important one because we can all feel a little stuck or what do I do? Or, and we don't necessarily have these venues for, for, um, either connecting with vision and so forth. So we have to kind of keep this building. Okay, maybe the last one and then we'll... This isn't really clear in my mind. I hope I can articulate it enough so it's helpful in some ways. Um, but, um, and I'm sorry that I was late, but I heard you quoting, I 
Yeah. And um, I'm here this morning instead of going to a parade because I was listening to Bill Moyers last evening, yeah. watching him on TV. Yeah. And um, he was interviewing a person who's written extensively about racism with a lot of insight. But the point in my mind right now is holding the people who wrote the visionary works um, as complete people. Mm -hmm. Not only shining visionaries, but shining visionaries who depended on slavery, let's say. Right. And that, that for me, although I would love a monthly place to go to yeah. look through the sense of overwhelm yeah. and the feelings, um, remembering and choosing <laughs> to see people who are idealized and their visions, yeah. which are very true, but to hold them as much as I can as complete people who yeah. aren't awful or wrong because they are complete but complex. Yeah. And somehow that makes it more possible to move. Yeah, yeah. Right. So it was a comment about uh, particularly reflecting maybe on the founders and their, the way that they had both uh, beautiful visions and were uh, caught in their own limitations, you know, which, which were, could be connected with some of what I was mentioning about the Constitution and who got to vote and so forth, that they were basically wealthy white men with property, and that if you weren't in that category, uh, you were, tend to be excluded from democracy originally, even with that beautiful vision. So that hold, your, the comment is the holding of the complexity and the kind of the mixed nature uh, somehow helps you to move, to move forward more, more easily. Yeah, to feel compassion to the best of my ability for the whole person. Mm -hmm. Visionaries now, visionaries then, both yeah. thoughtful or not. Yeah, to yeah, feel... We're going to all get better. Yeah. We're not really. Yeah, to, to feel compassion and to, um, um, yeah, just to really see, see what's there both then and now. And I think that's an important point. I, maybe just two comments briefly, and then, uh, then, we'll, then we'll finish. But yeah, I think that, uh, of course, knowing the history is very important and not idealizing, knowing the mixed history. And so a few things, just two major points occur to me. One of them is to, is to see that all visions... Uh, will have their contradictions and their limitations. I think that's that's necessarily that's always the case. And to see, and, but what we want are visions that have the potential for self-correction. That's the really crucial point. We and and that is there in this country. There is the potential for self-correction, which we've seen through the history. You know, again, imperfect. So that's one major point that the vision is always imperfectly realized, but we can keep on correcting. And that's there, as if there's room for self-correction, then there's room for movement. And the second point is to, to know ourselves also in a compassionate way, and know everyone right now, we also have our own contradictions and our own imperfections. You know, and, you know, we, many of us, drove here, 
know, or you maybe use energy in a way which maybe in the long term is not fully sustainable. But we have our own inner contradictions. We're not, we don't have it all worked out, nor would that be imaginable. You know, and it's to have some compassion. We want to, you know, minimize the most blatant contradictions. But know that we're imperfect. And know that we all have, um, we all both have our own inner material that has been the result of conditioning. That's hard. And we also participate in a system where we, you know, some people cho- choose to find purity by trying to remove themselves fully from it. And that's, doesn't seem to work very well either, right? And so that we all, that we can't really, in a sense, be totally pure, but that we have to, you know, have some compassion in that way. So I think that's a really, that's a really important point for, um, and, we, and we can take our contradictions and, wor- and try to work them, th- work them through. Okay, so just sit for a moment. Um, thank you for your kind attention. Sorry, we've gone a little bit over time. But thank you for your kind attention. May we all be, if this inspires us and energizes us, may we be our own types of bodhisattvas, following our own rhythms, our own calling as to what's important. And so I'll invite us just to sit with your sense of an intention that may be coming out of today, this morning. And then in this uh, way that we close often our sessions, typically our sessions, we remind ourselves really as an intention practice that we do this practice both for ourselves and also for others. It's really that um, core energy for the bodhisattva to combine inner work with helping others. And we offer the benefits of our time together out to all those with whom we're in contact face to face and then beyond that to the often mysterious interconnected interdependent world of all beings. So thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.